Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Wolfcast. We are joined today by Oscar Arslan Ayadin, a clinical professor of finance at the University of Illinois at Chicago. If you could see me right now, you could see me holding my thumb up because I feel like I was close. Close. Anyway, Oscar, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing this morning? You're in Chicago, right? That's right. Um, thank you very much for having me <laughs> here. Yes, it's a morning. It's a very cool morning in Chicago. Although we're supposed to be in spring, <laughs> yeah, we arrived to spring very late in Chicago. Yeah, Can I ask you what the temperature is right now? Because it's morning there, yeah? Oh, yes, so it's 40 degrees, so it's less than 10 Celsius. <laughs> it's very windy. Um, Basically, the wind's coming from the lake and makes it feel colder. I love it. It's 30 degrees here, and it's nighttime in oh, Bangkok. Very anyway. jealous. <laughs> jealous. I don't know. And it's weird, right? Like, 10 degrees is okay with me, but kind of anything below 10, and I start oh. getting a little bit antsy. Yeah, I don't like, like, yeah. 5, that's, 4. That's how it's in here. <laughs> yeah, I don't like it. Anyway, let's get a little bit of your background for some context before we move into the main part of this conversation. Sure. So um, I'm originally from Turkey. I'm Turkish. And, um, and my name is actually the most difficult Turkish name. Really? And uh, yes, if you can pronounce it my name, you can pronounce it any word in Turkish. Uh, <laughs> so um, I had my undergraduate studies in Hacettepe University in Turkish, uh, Turkey, and um, I studied economics. Okay. And then I had a finance graduate degree from University of Leicester, UK. Then I had a Jean Monnet scholarship from European Commission um, to, to, to be a visiting PhD student in University of York, economics. Oh, wow. Yes, so my, my, my PhD is also from Hedgetic University in finance. Um, so I worked in Ajitapu University for about uh, six years. I okay. became an associate professor there. Then I came to US and I started at University of Illinois at Chicago in 2010. And uh, now I came and just became a clinical professor now. <laughs> um, so I'm teaching finance classes here, mainly um, international financial markets, okay. which I teach about um, how we can give the best hedging and speculation decisions by looking at the interrelationships between key macroeconomic indicators such as interest rates, inflation, and exchange rates, <laughs> which is a very hot topic now, thanks to the rising inflation, high inflation environment. And um, yeah. it's, it's really popular. And I also teach um, investments and uh, also uh, corporate finance. And are these graduate classes that you're teaching? And I'm undergraduate and graduate. Undergraduate. Both. Both, yes, yes. And I also have some research students. We do independent research about an area that they're interested in, which is not covered by the regular classes um, in our university, which is really, really interesting because there's some niche subjects that they want to specialize, they want to expertise, have an expertise on. And that really enriches me too. Um, I have some teaching awards. Um, I have the Silver Circuit teacher, Teaching Award from University of Illinois at Chicago, um, which is awarded by graduating students. I have uh, the Teaching Excellence Award from also um, Culture of Business in University of Illinois at Chicago. 
Um, I love teaching, <laughs> especially like teaching finance is very rewarding because it's very dynamic and it's very applicable and um, it's, try, it's, it's, it's very engaging. Try not to touch the table. <laughs> no, because it's coming in through the thing. So finance actually is super engaging and I have this idea, right? And, and again, tell me where I'm wrong here. I'm biased. I studied economics. So I didn't get a graduate degree, right? So I don't know nearly as much as what you did, but I went on to then go into the financial markets globally, right? So I sat on a portfolio trading desk. I've traded foreign exchange. I traded options. I've traded futures. I've traded commodities. I'm super mm -hmm. interested in like what the attitudes are of students at university today when they're taking your courses and learning about, particularly in what's been a flat interest rate environment for 10 years, 15 years, yes, yeah, since it 2007, is. 2008. And now that things yes. are moving around, now that the Fed path is changing, and now that inflation mm -hmm. is coming, which hasn't happened in a decade and a half, what is the attitude of students and what is the viewpoint that you have on how all these things are now changing at the same time? Does that make sense? That does. Um, Chicago is one of the financial centers in the world yep. for this reason. And, and the thing is, our university is located in downtown Chicago. Really? It's in the arm's length to the important, you know, the, 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 the trading centers in okay. here. So there is a natural interest and um, also relating with what's going on in practice. Yeah. And not yeah. only that, uh, I try to relate with how the theories we covered in the class played out play out in a real life yeah how it's relevant and it's even more interesting to see how the theories contradict what we learn but uh, i mean the theory the theories with, that we learn in the class contradict with what's going on in real life and trying to explain that these are also very these are very very interesting and let me give you an example Please. what we do in our, in our classes is we cover these theories for example, covered interest arbitrage and going purchasing capital parity. Yep. These are the you know the classical theories we cover in international financial markets. And then what I ask them to do is I want them to do a news analysis, study the current event, and make a presentation to us about how it relates with what we learned in the class, or how it contradicts with what we have learned in the class. So let me give you a very simple example. Please. please. Um, so the COVID inflation, <laughs> you need to increase interest rates. And when the interest rates rise because of the rise in inflation, okay, and this is the way to also cope with the depreciation of the domestic currency. So Turkey <laughs> had a rising inflation in the last year, but they, you know, followed a very low interest rate policy that caused a further depreciation of domestic currency, which is contradicting with what we have learned that provided a great case study for us so students are very interested because they are able to be equipped with the tools that they can use to interpret and also make projections about what can happen in the markets not only in domestic markets, also international markets. Yeah. I mean, all the financial markets are connected and way more connected today oh, yes. than they were even 10 or 20 years ago. Oh, yes. Yes. Do students, That's right. Yeah. Do students understand? Because this is interesting, right? In, you said, if I have this right, that in a rising inflation environment, there should be an expectation of rising interest rates to combat that inflation. We saw in the 70s in the United States what we called stagflation, right? Where super high mm -hmm. interest rates 
but also super high inflation as well, driven in some cases by rising oil prices out of the Middle East when OPEC decided that they should raise oil prices. Again, interesting. Do the students understand that it's not just the absolute value of interest rates nor the absolute value of inflation, but the expectation of where they're going to go as well? Do you know what I mean? Actually, (laughs) the concept of real interest rates, learning about interest rates, the components of interest rates, that basically opens their eyes on how to approach the interest rates, right? And seeing how the interest rates affects all the other indicators uh, that they observe. How is interest rates related with the stock market, for example? That's a... I mean, they, they are very interested, and again, it all leads to the conclusion that why I like teaching finance so much, or asking, in my research, asking new questions to study. How because do it's you, very dynamic. Yeah, it's super dynamic. How do you handle economic ecosystems, and again, tell me where I have this wrong, right, where interest as a, is not a thing? Very cautious. (laughs) Cautiously for sure, right? But if you wanted, because we we were talking about this offline a little bit, right? And again, I don't have a full understanding of the way Sharia finance law works, but maybe we can dig into this and try to figure out why that's that's so important. Why, first of all, interest itself, if I have this right, is not part of the way Sharia finance works, and there are ways to get around it. But also, why is this idea and this concept and the learning about this gaining Mm -hmm. in popularity in a place like Chicago? That's a good question. <laughs> Especially talking about the interest rates that leads us to the Islamic banking in finance. Yeah. Now, uh, the role played by creating and exacerbating the global financial crisis, the role played by the conventional banks, the banking system that we know, we call it as a conventional bank just to differentiate. Right. Basically, um, has led to looking into the alternative banking systems, okay? Because the the people have realized that there is an interruption in the real financial relationships, how the funds are collected from the borrower, uh, from the savers, and how they're effectively uh, allocated to the investors. So one of the alternative banking system is Islamic banking and finance. Right. So Islamic banking and finance is called as Sharia finance as well, as you have said, because the meaning of Sharia is justice, fairness, and equity. And basically that summarizes all of the Islamic banking and finance principle. Everything has to be fair. Two sides have to be fair. And there shouldn't be a zero-sum game. One's loss shouldn't be the other's gain. <laughs> so the, all systems are built on this principle. So when we look at uh, the sources of Islamic banking and finance, it's uh, the, the biggest sources, of course, um, the Holy Quran, and also the Sunnah of Prophets, Prophet Muhammad, the sayings, the traditions, and Ijma, which is the opinions of the jurist, Islamic scholars, and Qiyas, which is the analogies with the existing law. Now, um, and also starting right up the following the um, 
global financial crisis, especially I want to focus on the years between 2005 and 2013 because my current research at the moment, which is on Turkish banks, conventional and Islamic banks, is focusing on those years. Um, and I can tell you why we restrict ourselves please, with that please, time please. window. Yeah, so we see that the world wide, the banking assets of Islamic banks grew by 25%. That was a striking growth. Wait a second, yes. start, starting starting when? Or just over that eight-year time period? 2005 and 2013. So this between 2005 and 2013, you grew by 20 times. Just 25, want to be clear. 25%. Okay, go yeah. ahead. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, so this is... One of the biggest reasons is that Islamic finance could avoid the toxic debt issues, right? And but we look at and we compare with um, the U.S. Uh, the uh, the growth of assets by the U.S. private financial institutions is only six percent, and if we look at for in the same time window the growth in the worldwide banks, it's ten percent. So that justifies. A further looking to the Islamic banking and finance. Yeah, so why? how do Islamic banks make money? <laughs> this is the first question that this, my students were asking. And I was telling them that, well, you have a whole semester to learn about it. <laughs> but I can, I can um, basically summarize for that. Um, so Islamic banking, the three things are prohibited. But one thing is allowed. The first thing that's prohibited is making money out of money. So money doesn't, does not have any value. It's just a medium of change in Islamic finance. And uh, for this reason, the money shouldn't be used to you know, generate more money. That's the, that's the basic philosophy here. That's the first uh, Principle. proscription. Yeah. Yes. And then the second thing is interest. The thing is, there shouldn't be a guaranteed a guaranteed rate of return in an investment. You shouldn't be guaranteed a return. Now, the other catch your money in an investment, okay? Because the reason is what is allowed is a risk shifting. The thing is, you have to share the risk in order to be able to entitled to a return. So that's the fairness portion. So without sharing the risk, you can't be promised a return. Okay, so if you are sharing the risk, can we just back up again for a second? Sure. Just to kind of define in my mind what traditional banking is. Traditional banking, just the banking itself and how a bank makes money in the traditional world, right, is that I have money, I put it in a bank, the bank takes that money, they leverage that money by lending it to somebody else and by taking a fixed interest rate or a, or a floating interest rate, but some guaranteed level of return yes. at least, right? Right. And right. then the bank takes that... And it's that, certain. Yeah. And it's certain for you. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, right. And the bank then, when they have that money, they may invest it in something, which is another story altogether. But the idea is deposits into lending, into interest rates, back into paying back the person who has the money. And there is no shared risk because, no. because the person who's borrowing the money is taking all the risk and the bank is just like, you owe me money, right? It's a 6% yes. interest rate. You pay me monthly or whatever it is. So you're saying in Islamic finance that there's a shared risk. So how does that flow happen again? Is it the same thing? I have money. I put it in a bank. And then the bank 
lends it to somebody else who wants to borrow absolutely. it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but then what happens? So then how is that risk shared and then how is the money made? So I can understand. Actually, yes. So um, I'm going to come to that. Okay. <laughs> shush, Michael, shush. No. <laughs> but how the money, um, so basically how this money is provided to the investors is another thing that's not allowed is a speculation. Speculation is basically taking an advantage of a window of opportunity that's going to potentially happen in the future, right? right, right. So, and also when we look at the derivative market, isn't it the derivatives? We call them derivatives because their values are derived from the underlying assets. Yeah. It's like a balance between hedger and speculator. It's also like you know, um, two parties which have different expectations yep. about the future value of that asset come right. together yep. and it's a zero-sum game when you think in very simple terms well, it has to be because right? if i win because if i win you lose right because <laughs> if my expectation of what's going to happen in the future is yeah. different than yours well i've bought a call or sold you a put or whatever and then one of us makes money the other one loses everything yeah kind of thing sorry go ahead this is against the shareholder principles of justice fairness and equity so if i am provide if i'm going to get a gain i should also provide a gain for you as well go ahead Yes. So uh, that's the that's the notion about speculation. So when I come to these three prohibited activities, all come to the concept of risk, risk, risk shifting and how Islamic banking can finance is potentially a good intermediary in avoiding the agency costs, two agency costs that we see in the banking industry, adverse selection, and moral hazard. And moral hazard so what, for sure. Go ahead. Adverse selection is okay. There's lender. Uh, there's investors there. Okay, they would like to lend money from this financial institution, and uh, you might lend to the one who do not deserve that amount. Because. For example, they don't have this growth opportunities. They don't have a good future prospects. But the thing is, if you're guaranteed a return, if you're guaranteed a collateral to back up the money you're lending, you'll be less willing. I mean, I'm thinking of getting a very simple environment. You would be yeah. less, yes, general terms. You would be less willing to make sure that the party that has the best future prospects is going to be lent, right? And when you think about it, this leads to misallocation of resources. Because the efficient allocation of resources means that there is no um, adverse selection. The, the, the part of the investor that has the best investment opportunities okay, should be allocated first. right? And the thing is, you need to be able to discount that amount depending on the future prospects. Discount the, meaning? The thing is, we use it as a required rate of return. As a required rate of return goes up, the amount that could be acquired by the investor goes down, right? So you're talking about discounting, defining... you're talking about discounting future cash flows using some kind of DCF function. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Just want to make sure. Getting okay. too technical, sorry. But Not the for thing me. Is, but the thing is, <laughs> sorry. But the thing is, um, so the amount that is going to be allocated to the investors should be proportionate to their future prospects. They value the potential of them to create the value, right? Yeah. But the thing is, think about it. You're a financial institution. You're guaranteed a return. You're going to get that money anyhow. 
you have a collateral. That money could be wasted somewhere, right? In, in an area that is not going to generate any value. So how does the economies grow? The economies grow when we call them as worthy investors um, are able to access to the sufficient amount of funds to realize that value generating investments, right? Yep. This, is, this is how the efficient uh, allocation of capital takes place. But the thing is, if you're guaranteed a return and if you the amount you lend um, has a backup of collateral, you'll be less yeah. willing to, yes, they'll be less willing to be more efficient. And this calls to misallocation of resources. So this is one thing, how um, the risk sharing, the risk shifting could be addressing this. And also the concept of moral hazard. So what yeah. is a moral hazard concept? It's, um, okay, you allocate it that fund to the investor that has uh, the best future prospects and that has the highest potential to create a value. But what if that right investor, okay, doesn't allocate that money to that area, just puts that money into a completely irrelevant area? So this is called as a moral hazard. That's also the misallocation of resources. What's well. the what's the economic impact of a misallocation of resources and how do we account for just pure due diligence on any kind of lending, right? I mean, the idea is collateral or not collateral, there's some amount of due diligence that should get done to determine whether someone is a worthy borrower or not. This doesn't mm -hmm. always happen properly, right? And this is where the misallocation yeah. of resources come up. And there's plenty of moral hazard. We don't need to go only back to 2007 to see exactly, it. Exactly, not the global financial crisis, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. But also mm -hmm. the speculation that was happening back then and, you know, 10 years before that and then 15 years before that, we can go back and find every financial crisis driven by um, unbridled mm -hmm. speculation. Mm -hmm. So completely understood. But then if that's the case and there's risk sharing, and if I make yes. money, you make money, and we split it in a way that we consider to be fair and just and equitable, how does the money get made? And let me, let me just presume something and tell me That's if I'm wrong. That's a good question. Yeah, let me just presume something. That's a good something. question. So if, you, if you're a bank and somebody deposits money in the bank, you lend me that money, and I make money from that, right? I make a proper investment. We eliminate the moral hazard. So you, you lend me that money because you feel like there's a return that's available for what I want to do with that money and then I mm -hmm. make some, is there a predetermined split then of that profit? Go That's ahead. That's right. That's right. But I'm coming to that now. Very good questions. That's actually the follow-up of what I was going to explain. Yeah. So uh, we have this background, right? The background idea about how this key financial activities are going to take place. Now, there are two ways that the Islamic banks okay, lend that money. The first one, I'm going to explain what they are, deferred sales contract. The second one is a profit sharing contract. What was so the first one? How they work, what was the uh, first one? Deferred, deferred sales contract. Got it, go ahead. Yes. So in deferred sales contracts, um, the best example of that is um, rubber. Um, and also Jare is another example. It's like the conventional leasing. So what happens is that they put it in very simple terms. Um, so there's an investor, for example, it needs some real assets in order to produce these goods and services. Yep. 
and in, that investor needs funds in order to purchase these real assets. So what this, what in, this investor does is goes to the Islamic bank and pinpoints the, the real assets, what do we call as a real assets, that anything that you use, tangible, intangible, in order to Bus, produce these I assets, mean, machines, yeah, you know, whatever. manufacturing plants. So uh, the bank purchases the, that pinpointed asset, okay, purchases, and then sell, and then uh, gives that asset to the um, investor, and that investor makes periodical payments like an annuity stream. It's on a cost plus market basis. Okay, so this is called as a Murabu, a deferred sales contract. So what are the advantages of that? Um, there's a risk shifting from firm to Islamic bank in terms of the conventional banking. And the Islamic bank also bears the risk because of the ownership within that time window when this payment is made. They own the assets. Yeah. So at the end, for example, the maturity of these payments starts at T and it has like for N years, T plus T, T plus N. Within that time window, um, the investor makes periodical payments. Yep. And the ownership actually increases as per each payment. The ownership increases so, for the borrower. Oh yes, yes for the yes for the borrower. The investor's ownership increases per each payment. Got it. Mm -hmm. So um, let me try to answer your question. This is the first method. Um, and how is this risk shifting takes place? Now, think about it. Now the bank purchases that asset yep. in Raba mm -hmm. and has to make sure that this asset is the one that is really going to be used to produce these goods and services. What is the potential of these goods and services to create a value for the shareholders right. or generate cash flows? That's how we say, right? Um, so this is the way to avoid, mitigate, in other words, the conflicts of agency, agency costs that I have mentioned. And another uh, advantage from the investor's point of view is the ownership risk of, I mean, any risk that you can think of, but owning a tangible asset, it can be an intangible asset too. Um, it it's belongs to the bank depending on the ownership level. Um, so we, can, we see that risk shifting from um, the firms to the Islamic banks compared to the conventional banks. Now, let me compare with the conventional setting. In the conventional setting, what happens is the bank gives the money, okay, lends the money, buy the real assets, okay, make the payments, interest payments, fixed or floating, as you have said, and probably that asset is going to be collateral. So there is less incentive from the bank's perspective to avoid relatively, in theory, of course, these are all in theory. <laughs> That's why in classes we discuss so they have less incentives, less monitoring, right? There are also other facets of um, agency costs, for example, like free cash flow problems. And as you can see, the fresh free cash flow problem can be um, attenuated in this way too, because there's more monitoring from the banks, from the Islamic bank, 
on the activities, core activities of the firms. So this is one way, which is deferred to sales contracts, which is the contract with cost plus market basis. Yeah. And Moraba is the best example. Another one is the Lijara. Lijara is like, um, it's sometimes called it Islamic lending. Um, the difference between the conventional lending and Islamic lending is, now in conventional bank lending, in classical terms, in generalized terms, when the lending takes place, uh, of course, you know, uh, disregarding, I mean, excluding any costs arising from negligence and misusage, but all the ownership related costs and tax taxes and risks in conventional bankings belongs to the conventional banks. But in Islamic banks, the Islamic bank bears it during that leasing process. So that's another risk shifting. Interesting. That was one. That was one way deferred sales contract, yep. and the other way is the profit sharing contracts, which is the best example of that is the Mudaraba. So profit sharing contract is uh, very similar to what you have explained in your question yeah. to me previously. Yep. So in here, uh, the bank we call it as uh, the bank provides the funds, okay, and the other party investor provides the know-how the knowledge the management okay and the profit is shared okay and usually uh the risk is shared between the bank and the investors so the both parties share the profit and share the risk but the bank is the one that provides the funds and um the investor is the one that provides the management the bank doesn't interfere with the management of that project it is kind of like a project financing uh, it's closely related and it's sometimes some sometimes students ask is it not like an equity uh, but the three unique characteristics of the profit um, sharing contracts to the relative the equities first of all there's small number of financiers there are a small number of you know syndicate of islamic banks that provide um these funds there's a finite duration in equity there's you know yeah, it's infinite, infinite. Forever, yeah. <laughs> and in a way that um that's where i'm going to come the free cash flow uh problems are retaliated because free cash flow is a big problem um, how do we call free cash flow in corporate finance? The, the cash flows that you're left with in the company after all investments are done. Right. And that's something a great resource for managers because um, they can do anything with them. <laughs> and we hope that for the shareholders, they're allocated to value enhancing activities. But the thing is, because of these profit sharing contracts, they're less number of you know financiers they're able to monitor the free cash flows too. Now, the great thing is, um, as I told you, there is no collateral in here, again, for the bank's perspective. So banks have more incentives to be involved and make more assessment, evaluation of the potential investors that are going to be the other parties of the, the profit-sharing contract. Mudareba is the best example of this. Got it. Can I ask you this? It's a completely different way of looking at the risk sharing in lending. 
I'm curious what the reaction of the students is, particularly over the term of the semester, as all of these new concepts are being taught to them, because they're brought up looking at a banking system and a financial system that's completely different from this. Do you see a thought change in a bunch of the students that are there? Do you know what I mean? Because their whole framework for how they think about deposits into lending into interest rates as opposed to deposits into you know, just and fair and equitable risk sharing, do they leave thinking the course like, okay, this is a completely different way to think about this? Do you know what I mean? That's a very good question. Actually, you really incorporated the human behavior yeah. to all these theories. That's a very good question. Okay. Now, uh, there are two ways to answer that question. First of all, this generation is so open to learn about alternatives. They want to look you know, beyond lines, think out of the box. They're very open to that because they're surrounded by lots of information. And um, especially, sorry, five, six years, the, the life is changing in a very fast, fast pace. Yeah. What I observe with this, I, I say young generation, for the past uh, five, six years, they need to be very adaptable to the changing environment. And they, the adaptability is amazing. I'm comparing with the late 90s when I was young. <laughs> it is, th this is a huge strength that they're, you know, developing. For this reason, they're very open they want to know about alternatives they want to know about what is out of the standard and they really really like it did they, ask... they also sorry go ahead <laughs> they also want to and now well, that's also what i observe they also want to differentiate their skill set go ahead they would like to have a diverse skill set they just for example we see for example i don't have the exact percentages okay. but they're more students they're having different majors, okay, rather than having one major, for example, once the students which are having political science and marketing major, or computer science and finance major, you know, there are more fusions, I would say, in different majors, because what I see is now the young generation, I really like that, <laughs> they would like to diversify, although our system requires expertise in a very narrow area, right? Yeah. But in order to generate this expertise, they want to see what is out there, right? So that they can have a better a choice set, more variable choice set. Right. I mean, we can spend years talking about whether the educational system today has adapted to this need for the just entire overflow of information that students get that oh, simply yes. wasn't available when I was learning economics at university. Oh, yeah. You had more because you're younger than I am, but this new generation has way more information and a much larger global framework to understand. Yes. I didn't know that there was Islamic finance. It wasn't that I ignored it, but when I was studying economics, it was just like classical, classical Keynesian economics, you know, yes. all this Milton, yeah. for all this kind of stuff, but that was it. Yeah, and that in a was way, a, a very binary, right? It was completely. It was either there was no economics <laughs> or it was this economics kind of thing. Intervention, non-intervention, exactly. Yeah, but, exactly. but can I ask you this, though? Because yeah. there's so much information floating around, and because yeah. I, f and I have these conversations all the time with people, they're like, yeah, but the financial system can't change because it's always been like this. And I say, wait a second, though. Can you define always for me? Because the financial oh. system that we have today 
hasn't really existed that long. In the exactly. in the well, in the course of human history, I mean, think about it. The United States as a hegemonistic economic player, with the dollar being the currency of choice globally, has only really been around the U.S. for less than three hundred years. But the dollar as a currency that's dominant has really only been around for like seventy-five. It's just like zero amount of time in the history of the universe. And I'm super curious if your students raise their hand and say. Okay, this is also an alternative. It's a very interesting alternative. But how about crypto? Oh, that's and, another thing. And decentralized oh, yes. finance. Do they talk about this as well? They talk about this a lot in my international financial markets. Go ahead. And that also inspired another strength of my research. The thing about cryptos is, or cryptocurrencies, um, initial coin, coins offerings. Right. There's a lot of information asymmetry, a huge information asymmetry. Sure. I think about ICOs. I mean, the only information you can have, the main and only, is the white papers. And uh, the white papers are very heterogeneous. Because they're, they're not <laughs> written to be informative. They're written to be marketing papers. So it's completely Marketing different, right? papers. And they are so different from each other. And they're the main source of information whether you would like to put your money or not. Yeah, you right? can't compare them because they're not, yeah, they're not <laughs> written in a way that makes them relatable at all. That's right. Yeah. And the thing is, um, another thing, the regulation. There's no regulation. And it's so difficult to make a uniform standard regulation, isn't it? For this reason, we are just our paper is just uh, accepted. Yesterday, we've heard about a European Journal of Finance. Um, this is inspired by the question, actually. The, the questions are very inspiring for me to ask these research questions. What we found it, um, well, I was looking at that. We were with my uh, courses. We were looking at the white papers and the research on the white papers. The research shows that the potential investors do read white papers. That's the only source. That's all they have. But uh, compared to other uh, qualitative information provided by the public companies, you know, they're very heterogeneous. Yeah. They're so different from each other. So what we did is. We look at the impact of linguistic errors, like spelling and grammar errors, and the amount of funds that the ICOs, uh, specifically impact of linguistic errors in the ICO why? white papers. But why did in you the think amount about this? Of, Because that's the only information. How can you judge the ability of uh, the, you know, the investor, right? So uh, we, one of our co-authors is a linguist from the English department. So she has a very advanced way of, you know, measuring this, um, she has this, a yeah. technical way of, and she knows the literature, you know, how to evaluate spelling and uh, grammatical errors. So what we did is we are four authors. <laughs> we work through more than 500 white papers. And we looked at the grammatical spelling errors. And what we've seen is, yes, linguistic errors do have an impact on the amount raised. And uh, the ICOs um, originated from uh, English-speaking countries. They're penalized more. The countries which has less regulation, because we see more and more local regulations are being originated, right, for right. ICOs. Um, less regulated markets. There's more um, penalty by the potential investors for extending funds. So, sorry, just so I understand. So, you're suggesting yes. that... If the white paper is poorly written, 
that yes, they're going to be penalized. People are just going to be like, these people must be idiots because they can't even spell dog if they're <laughs> spotted a D and a G. <laughs> Yeah, but in countries where English is not the native language, that there's less of a penalty. I guess it makes there sense. There is relatively less. Yes, it makes sense, and though, yeah. um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and also regulations. If the country because regulation is a kind of signal, right? And if it's less regulated, there's more penalty. So there are many questions that can be asked on how the white papers should be approached, how they're going, how they affect the. Because when you look at the you know, ICOs, the cryptocurrency world, is a democratization of funding, trying, right? Because trying, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's good to provide some insight about um, you know, the best ways to raise these funds <laughs> or the reach to potential investors. I'm just always fascinated by what the students are thinking. Right. That's why I'm asking these questions because you're sitting yeah, there teaching asking. about this, you're teaching about that, and they're just saying, How about DeFi? <laughs> right. But yes. So um, again, as I'm t telling you, um, I have great impression about our new generation. I think so. Um, the thing is, they are very open-minded. They have to be knowing all the details about any innovation, and that's actually the resonation of the fact that the investors are also becoming more sophisticated. Yeah. Right. They're asking, for example, questions. Even even. A person I met is asking a question, how can I cope with in rising inflation? Right. The stock market is not hopeful. I have a short investment horizon. What can I do? I don't want my money to, you know, er it's purchasing power to ero uh, subject to erosion. So I see that the people in general public is also more interested with macroeconomic facts, financial markets. Yeah. Because they have the they have the notion that there is an opportunity. I mean, they have a let me put it this way: growing notion that there is an opportunity cost rising. I mean, they're laying out there. How can I make the most of it? Um, this is also reflected on the students because they, apart from the classical theories that we cover, the right. basics, they want to see the innovation going on in the markets. They want to know the pros and cons. Um, they want it, having access to the correct information. I think this is the biggest challenge they have, having access to correct information, because the textbooks, we cover the basis, right? The basis theories. But yep. how those these theories go hand in hand with the innovation going on in financial markets, um, that's one challenge. Is it the correct information? Right. Or do they evaluate in the correct way. <laughs> so there's this big informational challenge taking place right now. And I think it's, we're at this tipping point for lack of a better term, right? So if you go back to the seventies, eighties, nineties, you see this growing <clears throat> amount of information, particularly with the connectivity that the internet provides and everyone has a mobile phone mm -hmm. on them. So, you know, the thing I used to say was there's no such thing as a bar bet anymore, because when you're standing in the bar, you don't have to wait three days to figure out who starred in a particular movie, you just kind of look it up on IMDb and you know it for a fact. So there are no bar bets and bar fights. But <laughs> the flip side of that is that you're overwhelmed with information and you don't know which part of it's right. So I think we're still at the beginning of this idea of how do we curate, filter, and make sure that at the end of the day, the information that we're getting is factual. And I know there are arguments yes. of what that means. Yes. But that yes. does filter down into this idea of how do I understand the macroeconomy if I'm not even sure that the data that I'm getting to analyze the macroeconomy is factual? 
I want to ask Actual. you. Yeah, I want to ask you one last thing before I let you go because you you mentioned this. People come over and ask you like, how do I make sure that I don't lose my purchasing power? Do people still talk to you about gold? They do. They do. <laughs> they do talk about gold. Um, so the thing is, if I'm evaluating an asset for them, whether it's a commodity or financial asset, to which extent uh, it is explained, its performance is explained through macroeconomic fundamentals right. is important to me. Can yeah. I explain that its performance is a sentimental or is it driven by, you know, can I make a technical analysis on that? Right. How is it affected by the political risk? Each commodity is affected by the political risk in a different way. And to which extent key macroeconomic fundamentals affect the valuation of that commodity? So right. that's very... That <laughs> but does anybody understand that when you tell them about that? Right? Like I studied economics and I sat on a trading desk for years, right? So this conversation is simple, but when... A layperson asks you, when you say that to a layperson, do they know what you mean? Mostly? They became more aware that the de decision, the final decision depends on so many factors, not only one factor. <laughs> Got it. That's, that's the awareness that they get. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to let mm -hmm. you go. This was awesome. We have to have more of these discussions. Great. Yeah. How can thank I thank you? you? I'm going to try again. Oh. Osgar Arslan Ayadina, clinical professor Perfect. of finance, University of Illinois, Chicago. Thank you so much for doing this today. Thank you very much for having me. It was so much fun. <laughs>